Welcome everyone again to the Money Mentors podcast. I'm joined again by uh, Nathan Lear as co-host of this program. Um, as, as we spoke about a few weeks ago in one of our first podcasts for 2020, we sort of promised you all that we'd start introducing some guests just to give a different perspective and get some broader knowledge on various financial matters. Um, so this week, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Shane Wakeland, so former AFL player, originally recruited in the 1992 draft by St Kilda, played 94 games for them and then moved on to Collingwood where he spent um, seven or eight years and played over 150 games for, for that club. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Shane. Thank you, Glenn, and thank you, Nathan. Thank you for that lovely introduction. It, um Brings back good and bad memories. No, absolutely, I've, I've, I've put those Saint Kilda games <laughs> in in the bottom drawer, and I forgot about them forever. Well, as sorry the, for all those Saint Kilda supporters did, out there. Did you leave out Port Adelaide or Port Adelaide, or did we leave that out or not? Well, at Sandville, I think. Yeah, so I started in the SANFL. Um, so that doesn't count then. No, that doesn't count yeah. at all. No. We'll, we'll disclose this up front for the listeners. Nathan and I are both uh, very keen Collingwood supporters, so we probably focus more on the. Collingwood side of things, but you obviously had a, a great career at, at Collingwood with some really good years in the early sort of 2000s. Yeah, no, thanks, Glenn. Yeah, I, I've got some wonderful memories back in those days. And, um, you know, I, I think I was probably the, had the classic experience as an AFL footballer because I, I suffered the hardships, um, suffered through injury, bad form, and the ups and downs, certainly in my first um, seven year period at St Kilda. Um, but I have incredibly fun memories of, of Collingwood because I was part of a, a relatively new group that, that come in at the start of the 2000s, including off-field with Eddie Maguire and Greg Swan and, and Mick Malthouse uh, starting as coach in at the end of 99. And um, that was an incredible time for the club because we, we came from Wooden Spooners in 99, I think it was, and in the space of three years, we were playing in grand finals. And, um, you know, I reflect back on those years with a lot of pride and, and a lot of happiness. Um, but I was very, very privileged to be able to play under wonderful leadership in Nathan Buckley, learn at first hand from people like Eddie Maguire and Mick Malthouse. And, and so the club for me has had a, a significant impact on my life and I'll, um, I'll thank, it, thank it forever. And just on that, as far as obviously you coming to the club at a period of, I suppose, transition, do you think, and, and you know, I suppose even internally in our business, we talk about leadership and culture. How important do you think that was to really change the dynamic of the club and, and, and go to some level of success as a team? Yeah, it was critical and it, it helped when you've got uh, someone of the calibre of, of Mick Malthouse, who's been a premiership coach twice, um, he understood what success looked like. Um, but the most important thing I learned from Mick was that he had a significant focus on getting quality people who understood what good behaviours were about and, and had fundamentally good values. And he recruited those players and those types of people into the football club. And so when I think about that, that leadership group that we had in that particular the 2001 to 2005 period they um, had great qualities of trust incredibly honest um, all were hard workers and were able to build this sense of camaraderie and teammanship um, that was f fundamentally built on great leadership 
but importantly, really, really strong values that everyone understood. Um, and um, I think that's important in any organisation. It's a really important uh, part of, of what I've taken into my post-football life as well, is that trust your own instincts, um, have a really strong set of behaviours and values, and if you work hard, harder for longer, you ultimately achieve what, what you want to achieve in the end. And um, that's ultimately what I've taken into my post-life football. And, and just as you were saying that, Shane, I was sort of thinking about the lessons that you can learn in a sporting organisation and then apply that in the, in the professional life. And, and we'll have a, ch- a bit of a chat about what you're doing now and, and so forth. But what do you think some of those lessons were that you felt you learnt at Collingwood or even at St Kilda that you can now apply in that professional world? Yeah, well, certainly um, overcoming disappointment, um, the the importance of resilience, um, and every week you're only one bad game away from, you know, your career almost being over. You're only one bad injury away from it getting taken away from you. So overcoming setback, um, uh, reinforcing and, I guess, creating a resilient mindset is is arguably the most important thing I've taken into post-football post life. Um, my career almost ended at 25, 26 when I left St Kilda and that's a really sobering process to go through when you have all your dreams um, and what ultimately is um, um, your, your dreams for the next five, six, seven years of your career just taken away like that. And that was a really important um, period for me because I was able to reassess prior to going to Collingwood and and just really grasp those important lessons of maintaining that that focus um, obviously continuing to persevere and I think that's been the most important thing post footy um, post football certainly hasn't been uh, easy and I can certainly respect the challenges that a lot of um, players go through and, and ex-sportsmen go through when they eventually retire. But if I was uh, if I was to sum up three really important qualities that have held me in very good stead uh, post-life, uh, they would be really resilience and the ability to just persevere for longer, um, trust your own instincts of, of being a good person and um, and then hard work. Um, and your ability to work within a team environment was obviously critical um, in terms of allowing me to transition into post post footy life. Excellent. Oh, look, great great messages there, Shane. Um, I was going to. Um, I mean, we could talk about footy all day, and I'm sure we'll ask a few more questions about footy as we go. But what I was keen to kind of hear from you today this the objective of this podcast is about uh, educating our listeners about financial literacy and awareness and just keen to hear from your perspective, from a, you know, a young a young guy getting getting recruited. You know, you probably maybe weren't working a lot. Maybe had a couple of part time jobs, and all of a sudden, I know I know times have changed since when you were first recruited in terms of um, salaries and whatnot. But you know, just you handled going from um, you know maybe not having a lot of money, all of a sudden you're getting a a pretty nice paycheck every week. And how did you approach that? Like, did you have a plan? Did you seek guidance from anyone? Just it was a while ago now, but just how you, how you dealt with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, um, I had to do a lot of learning on the job, Nathan. Um, I still remember my first AFL contract. I had a $7,500 base 
um, which was paid in equal instalments over 12 months. Um, I was on about 1500 a game and I think I had a couple of flights back to Adelaide. So it was either sink or swim. Um, back in 1993, that was probably okay money, but it was barely uh, at what you would refer to as a, a living standard. It would pay for a bit of rent and pay for your food. Um, but I was fortunate in that first year to play a couple of games. But um, So f- the, the valuable lessons that I learnt probably from about 18, um, 18 years of age onwards was not that I had a hell of a lot of money, but was the important um, basics of, of budgeting week in, week out. Um, I, I had a key focus in that first year of playing AFL footy, even though I was hardly making any money that I wanted to put a deposit down on a house and I was able to do that at the end of 1994. But that process over that first 12 months was very much around making sacrifices in your own life. Sure, I was able to go out and enjoy the camaraderie of teammates during the year, but I understood the importance of setting a goal at the start of the year financially and and working to it each week, you know, working to a budget each week. So. I was uh, fortunate that we had a little bit of that education when we were, when we were kids. We certainly weren't from an affluent family, but we didn't go without. So we, we understood the importance of, um, well, not using stuff like credit cards and, and making sure that you were tucking away a little bit of money week in, week out. And I guess those disciplines laid the foundation for my um, spending habits from, from that day onwards. Do you think you were the rarity in that case? I mean, obviously with a, a lot of young athletes that can, if you compare them with a lot of their peers, you know, outside of the AFL environment, um, I mean, in the public, we're probably more, we probably more speak about those who are sort of, you know, on, on larger amounts of money. Do you reckon a lot of younger people or, or athletes in general, professional athletes really ch- struggle with those financial challenges? Yeah, they do, and um, we we have to remember that these uh, young kids come from all different backgrounds, uh, as I'm sure many of your your clients and and listeners would as well. And some have positive influences in their life. Some are very fortunate to have that financial literacy from a very young age. Um, and these young sportsmen that come into the game are, are from very very similar backgrounds. Some have had wonderful upbringings. Some have come from nothing. Um, and what there, there's a significant emphasis put on the player to ultimately look after their own finances. I know it's matured. The industry has matured a lot since, since I started. But uh, these days, these second, third, fourth-year players are earning $300,000, $500,000, and they've got a lot of disposable income. I think the industry has matured significantly, but there will always be those individuals that will unfortunately fall through the trap because they haven't had that education, because they haven't had the right role models in their life, um, and they haven't been taught the fundamentals of, of um, saving and, and putting away money and not spending more than you can afford. Um, unfortunately... Um, Players, like any part of the community, will pick up certain habits like gambling and some will turn into alcoholics. It's just unfortunately 
Um, even with all these resources around them, there's going to be some that will fall through the cracks. But um, the AFLPA do a wonderful uh, job of educating and continuing to train um, all of the players um, from both the rookies all the way through to mature age players um, with financial literacy programs. Um, but ultimately it comes down to the individual wanting to do it themselves. But they're certainly the traps and um, and that that can be a downfall. And as we've seen with many players across the competition, they fall into gambling problems and it ends up being um, psychological problems and mental health issues that continue to flow into that. So, so by your own admission, you weren't earning huge money in, in 1993 when you were first drafted. You wouldn't have been how old? 18, 19? You wouldn't have been that old back then? Yeah, about 18. Yeah. So, and you've, you've, you've bought your first property in 1994, which is only a year later. So you're 19, 20, whatever you were. That's still, I mean, very, very young, I'd say on average, to buy to buy your first property. Um, even though you weren't earning, yeah, people might have thought you were earning a big salary, but as you said, it maybe it increased as you went. But I guess it just highlights the, you know, the, I mean, you obviously understood the power of the importance of budgeting and spending less than what you earn, which is probably number one financial principle for anyone that starts earning salary. But um, it sounds like you didn't get a lot of guidance from the AFL system necessarily. It's just something that maybe was within you um, to, to kind of work hard, save your money and get it, effectively get it invested, which property is a form of investing. Ab- absolutely. And um, probably two years earlier, when I was only 16, um, and I was only looking at some of this information um, a couple of weeks ago, when I was at Port Adelaide as a 16-year-old, I was on Ausstudy, which is the support payments back then. Um, I was earning $35 a reserves game. So um, I had to make some really hard decisions early on. Um, But... I think if you've got a curious mindset and you've got a want to learn, um, you'll continually educate yourself on what you need to do in any particular area of life. And for me, I had a curiosity. So I wanted to understand how successful people got to where they were. I wanted to understand what what the fundamentals or what the, the basic principles were of how they invested. So from a young age, I think it was probably in me that I had this curiosity to learn from whether it's a football coach or whether it was from an uncle who was a financial advisor. And I absorbed all that information and I put that practice into life. And I think that was probably the most important lesson that I learned was to always be a sponge, to always ask questions. And you can do that, but then you've got to put it into action. And I, I had a very strong influence with our, our father, well, both my brother and I did. And that set a really strong foundation in terms of always looking ahead, asking questions from people who are smarter than you, and then ultimately making some decisions to put a deposit on a house and to continue to save um, and, and have discipline from, from week to week. Do you, do you find or do you, on reflection when you look at, I suppose, the challenges that not just AFL players but I suppose every professional athlete with that finite career, I mean the, the career average for, for an AFL player or sportsman, m- many may be fortunate to play into their 30s but I suppose 
do you find that the challenge is for a lot of athletes that they just feel like it's going to go on forever like earning that above average salary you know pretty good money if it's as you were saying the average salary now is probably in excess of three hundred thousand dollars which is great money but when you consider that it's it could be for five six seven years on perhaps on average if not less than that do you reckon that that's where a lot of younger athletes can fall apart in that they just feel like it's going to go on forever absolutely and three or four five years of any working career or a professional sporting career can just go like that um the reality of a football season is you go from week to week to week and it's easy to get to your day off and go i just want to take it easy and um i guess the cross-section of players is the same cross-section of what we have in the community and some of those individuals will be proactive some will go after university some will um, do graduate diplomas in financial advice um, some will go off and look into apprenticeships or certificate fours in construction or whatever it may be um, but then there's always going to be an element of those individuals who haven't got the curiosity haven't got the appetite to continue to learn didn't necessarily like school um, and I'm not sure what the percentages are, but um, this is not only to AFL football, it'll be across all different types of professional sportsmen. Not all of them have an appetite to continue to learn. And I think in my experience, um, I had a lot of good mates who just continued to float on and had good seven, eight, nine, ten-year careers, but got to the end and hadn't really prepared both financially and hadn't prepared from an education point of view. So I, I, I totally agree that there's those players that think they're going to have a 250, 15-year career like I did, but the realities are that an average AFL career or professional career is probably in the order of three to four years. So, But um, I think the AFLPA and the individual clubs, these do do a wonderful job at, at educating and continuing to train and provide the right resources and encouragement for all of these players. Excellent. Um, Shane, might change it a little bit. So um, we've spoken a bit about property and your, I guess, foray into the property market at such a young age, which obviously gives us a little bit of a hint about maybe a passion of yours, but now you are actually working in property. So keen just to hear a bit about uh, what you do in, in the property space for work. Yep. Yeah, well, um, I'm, my current uh, role is uh, Director of Distribution and Investor Relations at, at Faulkner Properties. Uh, and in simple terms, I'm responsible for um, establishing partnerships and relationships with financial advisors, private wealth firms and predominantly accounting firms and really identifying investors who are looking at exposure into commercial property. Um, so my journey out of football started in one of the big four accounting firms. Um, I've always had that passion and interest in, in property investment, um, more so from a residential uh, point of view. Um, and the thing that, that really interested me about commercial property was when I started in a role going back five five years ago with one of the large residential construction builders here in Melbourne and that gave me an insight into 
I guess, a particular part of commercial property, which was more around the land development side, but also the precinct development side that a lot of the large groups like Fraser's were doing and Pete and Stockland. And I think the challenge that I had coming out of uh, football initially was you start like a graduate, you have particular interests um, that you may want to follow, um, but actually establishing a career and um, being in control of your, your destiny is a difficult thing. Um, so for me, um, I had a really strong foundation in, in residential property investment. Um, I got a very strong understanding from a financial point of view in my years at Deloitte. And then I started to get some significant exposure into the commercial property side when I went and worked for um, the residential construction uh, company. So um, I guess my, my real interest in uh, this particular sector was really understanding the different parts of commercial property. And I guess part of it was also following BRW lists each year and, and looking at a number of those individuals within the groups who'd made a significant amount of their wealth in property. Yeah, there's a big chunk of them, isn't there? A lot of the people at the top, probably in the top echelon of the BRW would be on the property side of things, wouldn't they? Absolutely. And, and so from that point of view, um, I was fortunate that uh, I'd followed a number of commercial property fund managers over a period of time just from an interest point of view. Um, just in a in my own uh, share port share portfolio, and um, I was fortunate that I um, knew the company from the outside in, and um, one opportunity led to another. So, um, and I guess the one thing that I really love is the the overall connection to the financial services industry. So getting an understanding of different portfolio allocation models, getting an understanding of the super fund industry and how they're allocating different um, amounts of capital and, and investing in different parts of commercial properties. So once again, it gets back to that curiosity that's ultimately led to my, my current role. And, and just, um, I suppose, expanding on what Faulkner do, um, a, a lot of the more recent property syndicates that have been created by Faulkner and I suppose a bit of a specialisation for, for for your group is in that sort of service station convenience retail um, side of things within property. Perhaps have a bit of a chat about why Faulkner have identified that segment of the market as attractive for investors and where the future lies with that, that sort of area of investing in property. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, firstly, a little bit of a background. Um, Faulkner Property had its origins uh, post-GFC post and we were um, successful in winning the property management rights for two particular Beckton trusts um, that had issues um, during the GFC period. And I guess from the origins of that, we developed a, a philosophy internally that was very much focused on the capital protection as a first priority for investors and regular income, rain, hail or shine. So irrespective of what economic conditions uh, would occur in the, in the future, uh, we wanted to create products that were very much a defensive part of any investor's portfolio um, and that could really hold up under scrutiny in really tough economic conditions. 
Um, and I guess when we talk about uh, understanding risk in commercial property, we very much talk about um, tenant risk, we talk about lease expiry risk, and we talk ar around interest rate risk. And so if we break them down, um, our expertise in fuel and convenience retail really comes down to those three elements. So firstly, from a tenancy risk point of view, we're aiming for A-grade tenants. And fuel and convenience provides that through companies that everyone would know and all your listeners would know in 7-Eleven, BP, Caltex and Liberty. And the wonderful thing about this type of asset class is the leases are generally the 12 to 15 year lease agreements. Um, they all have increasing income, rental income from the properties and convenience retail um, data shows that during tough economic conditions, the profitability of the actual tenants continues to, to, to remain uh, as we um, observed during the GFC period. So I guess those three fundamentals um, allow us to uh, talk to all of our investors with a lot of confidence that we're not a, a company that's taking on development risk. We're sure, we'll look for um, small little value add opportunities. But at the end of the day, we want our investors to know that um, the part of the portfolio they will allocate to Faulkner property is going to provide them regular monthly income and capital protection during tough economic conditions. So I think some of those really valuable lessons that certainly our executive chairman has learnt over a 30-year period um, and all the cycles that have come over the last 30 years um, is now embedded in our, in our culture and our philosophy of, of how we acquire properties. And um, that's what we continue to identify in the current market and, um, and we're really, really confident that that'll, that'll be um, a really important part of our future success. Um, Shane, yeah, we, we often have the discussion with our clients about commercial property and the importance that commercial property can play in a portfolio for a number of those reasons you just spoke about. Um, because m most clients, most people will be quite familiar with residential property. A lot of people will own a home. They might have an investment property. But I, I like to explain to a client that commercial property offers you know different characteristics. So some of the reasons you spoke about, um, you know, debt and I think you already said a couple of things, but just to kind of recap on that, would you agree that the key reasons are the the long lease profile in a lot of cases, so the, the security of the, the rental income that it derives? Um, would that be kind of the main, the main, you know, you talked about capital preservation and making maybe arguably making it a more safe part of the property portfolio based on the security of the income? Is that Ab kind of the key reason? Absolutely. So we, you know, qu quite often, the challenge for investors can be the question around illiquidity, but you know what we focus on is the long-term leases. So traditionally, these are high-traffic locations. Um, companies like Seven Eleven and BP have um, put an incredible amount of analysis and data analytics into understanding where the prime locations are for a fuel and convenience retail site, and. I guess a reflection of their uh, commitment is to, is to commit to 12 to 15 year lease agreements. And so 
that that is real the real key highlight of this type of investment and ultimately investing through unlisted property trusts um, investors can get exposure to that asset class that they ultimately wouldn't by themselves so um, that that's really the, the key element it's really important from a commercial property investment point of view that your properties also continue to to um, and your your income from your properties continue to outperform inflation so we have a really strong uh, focus on ensuring that all of our properties have three percent income increases on our rental income and with the compounding interest as we all know um, that has a significant impact on valuations over an, um, a six to seven year investment term as compared to only having CPI leases um, or, or, f or flat leases with no increases, ultimately um, your money's really going backwards if you're not getting that uptick in valuation. So that, that's a really critical part of our investment philosophy. Shane, just in, re in relation to the theme of, um, as you said, uh, service stations and convenience retail, there's obviously, at the moment, there's a, there's a strong move towards um, battery-powered cars and people have a lot of interest in that as to a percentage of the total number of cars on the road. It's still probably relatively small. Um, but as a long-term theme, obviously, you mentioned that companies like BP, Caltex are still, and 7-Eleven are investing a lot in, in, in this space. Do, do you see that as a challenge, an opportunity, or, or even just the breakdown in revenues for these tenants between fuel sales versus the convenience retail is, is that something that you look at as a long-term theme a absolutely and it's it's a critical part of us continuing to to um, conduct due diligence in into the industry and i guess at the moment um, it's important that in australia we um, look at what's happening in Australia, acknowledging what's happening in Europe and, and in particular in a, in a country like China. Um, but on a weekly basis, we're continually doing peer reviews on all of the updated reports out of Europe, whether that's BP, whether it's Shell Energy, uh, the reports out of um, BHP and some of the, the large uh, input providers um, for for EV uh, vehicles in regard to the batteries. Um, so at the moment, I think there's probably a one-sided argument to say it, it's potentially a, a significant challenge. Um, what we're also looking at it is a significant opportunity from the point of view there's a lot of focus on EVs, um, but we know also that Toyota is spending hundreds of million dollars on hydrogen cell vehicles. And we know that's a significant opportunity for our sites. We um, get a lot of intel from our major tenants, 7-Eleven, BP, Cowtex, and they're putting a significant amount of research uh, into this particular area. Um, the reason I continue to focus on and, and mention convenience retail is that we have a specific focus on the leading convenience retailers, being the four companies I've just mentioned, um, and in particular looking at um, where um, there's a, a greater convenience retail spend rather than there be just a fuel station that's there for vehicles to fill up. So what I mean by that is 
we we invest we're really investing directly in the 7-Eleven brand because we know that that's got the number one convenience retail offering in the country and so in a worst case scenario whether that's 2040 which is still 20 years away we know that these types of businesses will hold up very very strongly because they continue to innovate around convenience retail and um, it we we acknowledge it we continue to research it um, and it's a very um, part of the a very important part of the responsibilities that we take as a property fund manager and that is to be always looking ahead and always understanding what the potential risks are going forward any more property questions, Glenn? Otherwise, I was just going to maybe flip back to footy before we... Uh, just, just look, obviously, we're footy diehards at heart here. And I thought before we wrapped up, I'd just ask you... I mean, obviously, you, you learned some amazing lessons um, from your time in footy for some, from some amazing you know, people, Nick, um, Nathan Buckley, Mick Malthouse. But I was just going to ask you what, what your best moment in football was. Obviously, played in a couple of grand finals. Maybe it's that, but just... Yeah, kind of what was your best moment from, from playing AFL footy? Hopefully a Collingwood story coming up here. <laughs> yeah. Well, probably my favourite memory was um, the 2002 prelim final. I mean, the grand finals aren't great memories. Um, Is that against your brother? Uh, so that was... 03 was against my oh, brother. 03 was poor Adelaide. 02 yeah. was the famous Adelaide, prelim final yeah. against Adelaide. And that was, you know, that was a 12-year hiatus for the club since obviously the 1990 premiership. And we'd had a group that had come together literally in that 12-month period. Uh, we'd had a young Eddie Maguire who unbelievably was 34 when he joined as president of Collingwood in 99. Um, we had the experienced premiership coach in Mick. Um, but we had a core group that had a lot of setback. Mm. You know, there was a number that had been delisted by other clubs or traded. And for that... 12-month period or that six months of that season, we come together as a group and probably achieve far greater than what certainly the, the outside football world believe we could. Um, and that 2002 grand final side didn't have one All-Australian player. And if we think about no, the grand that. final sides of, of the modern days, you've always got five or six and seven Brisbane, I think, at the time had eight All-Australian players. So winning on that prelim final day um, and the Collingwood crowd, we must have had 70 or 80,000 compared to Adelaide's 20. That probably stands out as the, my, my favourite memory in football. Um, and, of course, the following week, I, I still look on that in with fond memories in terms of going so close but so far away. But... You can only ever give your best, and I think we can honestly say we did that day. And uh, I actually remember that game, and I, re I reckon at that particular game it was the loudest roar I've ever heard at a game. It was I think Anthony Rocker kicked a goal from about sixty meters out, yeah, the Southern city, Stand side, yeah, end, to, yeah, towards City Road. Unbelievable! It was a pretty loud roar that day. I was just going to make the point. You mentioned that that season and how uh, in two thousand and two Collingwood exceeded expectations. I I have heard Nathan. Um, Mick Moltau speaking in a podcast not that long ago saying, I think the question was, what, what's your, what are you most proud about in, in your coaching career? And he actually, he mentioned that over and above, you know, winning premierships, which he did with, with, um, with West Coast and with Collingwood later on. He, he mentioned that 2002 team mm. for the exact same reason you did, kind of against odds. No, maybe, you know, 
I mean, there was superstars, but no all Australian players, as you said. So, yeah. yeah, Nathan. And ultimately, I think that is the most important thing in life. If you can just do your best, get the best out of yourself, day in, day out, um, you'll get to where you want to go. And, um, you know, we don't have premiership re- reunions, um, but uh, for, for, you know, that six-month period, and in all due respect, the following 12 months, you know, there was a group of players that got the best out of themselves. Um, we were unfortunate that we come up against arguably the greatest side in history. Just one final question for me, Shane, before before we wrap it up and let you go. Um, it would be a miss of us if we didn't ask you how, we, how you think the Pies are going to go this year. Well, I'm quietly confident. I think we're just confident. Due, okay. we're, due, we're due for some luck, aren't we? Um, yeah, we've been I pretty think unlucky the last couple of years, I think. And, and I will say that ever since Buck started in 012 or whatever his first season was, we just haven't had any luck with injury. And I think if we can get that continuity, get some really good momentum into the start of the year, if Dugowie can remain fit, play a little bit more game time in the midfield, um, I think with maturity of, of more again, um, Grundy will continue to get better. And if if Pendlebury can hold up to his standards as well as side bottom, I think we'll be around the mark. Fantastic. Look, on, on that note, Shane, just on behalf of Nathan and myself, thank you for joining us this week and, and on behalf of our listeners and obviously look forward to, to staying in touch. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, again. Thanks, Thanks Shane. Thanks, Shane. Thanks again to all our listeners this week. Um, We look forward to chatting to you all again very soon. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening again to another episode of the Money Mentors podcast. Um, If you enjoy the the content, please do subscribe to the podcast um, via um, any good podcasting app. Um, Once again, please check out our major sponsors website, Hewison Private Wealth. Um, So just... Just search for Hewson Private Wealth online. Also check out Hewson Private Wealth's um, social media channels, Facebook, LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, Thanks again. We'll see you next week.